call it sower, some people call it seeds, I call it soils. He looked at what is the concept of success. The book looks at that and explained that a key um, aspect of the book um, that inspired these messages is this idea of fruitfulness. And it's not limited just one area. Most think people think fruitfulness is just getting people to sit in seats. Um, but instead, it's got to be that, but you've also got to have the growth of the gospel. Um, and you can see that in individuals, so within their lives and within their sort of discipleship um, trajectory of their life, but also it can be seen in congregations. So we've got the growth of congregations and the maturing of congregations. So um, what you might see as a broadening and deepening within congregations, the same as we can see within people, plus multiplied congregations. So you can see that going wider and deeper. So that would be sending missionaries overseas, like Jeremy and Miri to Kyrgyzstan, but it's also infill. So my son, for example, is part of a church planting team in Sydney that's trying to get a new congregation going in Marrickville. Now, there's been a church in Marrickville before, but they're trying to refill. So that's the sort of thing that Drew talked about there. I think that's what he talked about. I have listened to him um, online. I, for me, and I actually spent a lot of time looking at this particular passage, um, the main, most important point really of that parable is the sheer profligacy of the sower in it. Um, and so we've got to look for fruitfulness in unusual places, perhaps unexpected places. And the best example I came up with that is that uh, my wife and I and Jim and Linda are involved in Kairos. Um, there's a jail here in Musselbrook and we go in there. So yes, we go in and waste the gospel on criminals. Um, they're actually really interesting gentlemen. But anyway, we're meant to go on Tuesday. You can pray for me because every year you need to get a renewal of your authority to enter a jail and mine still hasn't turned up. And also Stuart Bell, the leaders, hasn't turned up. So if we turn up on Tuesday without our authority, we'll have to sit in the car park and let everybody else go in. Okay, next slide. Second week, I am the vine, John chapter 15. How do people know we're Christians? Well, we've just sung that chorus from the 1970s. You're going to get quite a few 1970s references today, probably a fact that I'm old, but anyway. Um, being a Christian is not a list of jobs. It's not a bunch of things we do. It is about being, not doing. Some of you may remember a magazine called On Being that uh, came out a few years ago. It was about Christian life. Doing is always easier. It's always easier to have a list of tasks and do it. Being is living plugged into Jesus, attached to the true vine. That's the point of that parable. Without it, we can do nothing. Um, it's not just reading the Bible and prayer. They're not the end point. They're not the destination. They are the, the road, in a sense, that we travel to get to knowing Jesus better. And so that's what we should be doing with those things. Um, learning how Jesus wants us to live. And it's avoiding the pitfall that I fall into regularly, and that's a fascination with knowing about Jesus rather than knowing Jesus, and there's a big difference. So Jesus assures us in that parable that remaining in him will lead to fruit. So that was the second week. So today, 
We're looking at Mark 11, 12 to 22, which Emma read to us and then disappeared out to help in Sunday school. Now, you may have noticed each of the passages that uh, Mr Turner, who wrote this book, um, has picked are really well known. You've heard plenty of sermons on each of those three messages. What he wants us to do is to look a little bit further than most preachers go um, in the way that Jesus is trying to bring us a message through these uh, stories. Now, I can remember going to a high school ISCF camp. Anyone else go to one of those? Oh, a couple, that's good, thank you. Uh, again, I think it was in 1973, um, in Katoomba. Now, I'm amazed that I can remember it, but there was the speaker there was a young Bible college student and just talked about this passage and described it as a Markian sandwich. I'll put it up there. And if you look in the book of Mark, and I'm not going to tell you where they are, you can either read the whole thing or you can go onto Google and they'll tell you. Um, you'll find that there are a number of places, probably about four, I think, where it appears that in the chronology, Mark has put something between, in the middle of something else so that you get an understanding that the two are related and you'd get more about both things by understanding the pairing of the two. Now, that person must have been right on the money because I did a bit of research and discovered that in the early to mid-1970s, a Jesuit theologian, John R. Donoghue, made this idea of the Markian sandwich famous. Now, you'll be thrilled to know the real word for this is intercalation, but nobody remembers that word, and you won't remember that word, but you will remember sandwiching. So that's why I'm telling you that. Okay, now, I, having always assumed that Mark tweaked the story and changed the chronology by sticking the temple bit inside the tree story, um, did it deliberately for emphasis, discovered that, in fact, there's a fair percentage of the commentators that actually think maybe that this is the correct chronology and that Matthew and Luke, because if you want to look in their synoptic gospels, um, they've changed the chronology and smoothed it out. Um, the answer is we don't know. It doesn't really matter. The Markian sandwich helps us and really it's really only of consequence to strange people like me. So we've got the cursing of the fig tree, then the consequential withering of the fig tree split into by the account of the cleansing of the temple. Um, Jesus' angry reaction to the commercialisation and profiteering in the temple. Okay. If you look at verses 12 to 14, if you've got a Bible there or your phone or whatever, it is unquestionably about fruitfulness. And that's why Andrew Turner has picked it. Now, this week, we were down on our farm and we looked at fig tree on our farm down by the hay shed. And there's me in a particularly dirty shirt that will embarrass my wife. I didn't wear one this morning to preach, I'm pleased to say. Um, with my hands up in the air trying to look theatrical, I'm probably not succeeding, where are the figs? Now, a couple of years ago, it's got a lot of rot in the middle of it, hard for you to see that, and I thought it was on its last legs. But we've had a terrible year for rain, but nevertheless, the fig tree, it looks fabulous. However, if you are dying of hunger and depending on it for edible fruit today, you die. 
Now there are. Figs, but they're not edible. Um, they won't be fat and sticky for a long time. Now, some of you may actually be aware that there's this long and deep debate about multi-fruiting of Middle Eastern fig trees and how they have some fruit that appear before the leaves and some fruit that appear after the leaves, and maybe that's the whole point, and it's really complicated. And I actually printed out a six-page analysis of that for anyone who's really interested, and then I couldn't find it this morning, so... But I know where I can get it again. If anyone's really interested in the oddities of Middle Eastern figs, you can come and talk to me about it. Um, I don't think it really helps us in the story. Okay. Many people see this story as deeply unfair. How could Jesus curse a tree? Going back to the 1970s, um, when I was at school, I read a book by Randolph Stowe called Merry-Go-Round in the Sea. Some of you may have read it. It was part of the standard curriculum in high schools. One of the characters in Randolph Stowe's book, which is autobiographical, his cousin in the book, was outraged by Jesus cursing the tree and said that he could not accept a saviour or go to church with his family anymore because Jesus cursed a tree. Pretty strong reaction. And I can remember at the time being very defensive thinking, oh, he couldn't say that. Probably less defensive now. There are, in fact, even plenty of biblical commentators that describe it as petty and capricious. That's what one of them put. And I think that that's a bit troubling for us because is it that we worship a God who's petty and capricious? If you look at the pantheon of Greek and Roman gods and others around, they have plenty that are petty and capricious, but we don't believe that our God is like that. Now, trees don't set fruit all the time. So why is Jesus upset? It does actually seem very odd. The best that I have come across is a bloke called N.T. Wright that many of you may have heard of, my son's hero, I think. Um, there's a lot of his books anyway. Um, he believes that this is Jesus involving himself in an acted parable. Now, if you've read through Jeremiah in particular, God gives him a series of really strange things to do as acted parables to the people of Israel at that time. And he thinks that really what Jesus is doing here is a fulfilment of what Jeremiah talks about in chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. Um, but I've noted, no, no, I haven't, um, but particularly verses 10 to 13. And also there's another similar sort of quote in Micah uh, in chapter 7, verse 1. Now there is a biblical example of a tree bearing fruit constantly. Now can anyone tell me where it is? Revelation. Thank you. Revelation 22, 20, uh, verse 2 has a description of the tree of life on both sides of the river of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit in all seasons. Now for those that are interested, you might like to... Think about Jeremiah 8 and Revelation 22.2 and Micah 7.1 and you can go home and look it up later. If I lost myself in that red herring now, we'd never get finished. Um, but think about that relationship to the story this morning. Not a tree of life. Go. Okay, on we go to the other side of the temple. Oh no, into the cleansing of the temple. 
the version that has this clear delineation of the money changers tables and the dove sellers chairs, very nice, many people make much of that. Then we have a couple of quotes. One is from Isaiah and one is from Jeremiah. This is N.T. Wright's evidence that, in fact, it is Jesus' intention to fulfil their words. The main question we have to address is, against whom is Jesus addressing his criticisms? Some people suggested all of Israel. Some people have suggested the institution of the temple. But neither of those can be right. There's evidence for that, but it's too long to explain. The answer must be the leadership of the temple, that is, the priests and the Levites. They had complete control of that building, the rites and the rituals of the religious life of the nation at the time. And Jesus, you'll probably remember, in Matthew 23, 4, is scathing about the way they build up burdens and put them on people and don't do anything to lighten that burden. So he's pretty harsh about the temple leadership. In fact, one might see that as the complete opposite of pastoral care. It's pastoral abuse. And that's a warning to all of those of us who exercise leadership in churches. So what is the temple? What Jesus saw was a magnificent show of activity and pomp and ceremony. Amazing architecture. This building was something to see. Eye-catching costumes. It all sounds to me like a Hollywood production. And really, it's the fabulous foliage of my fig tree without any fruitfulness at all. Now, it's important, I think, to point out that Jesus is not condemning the sacrificial system set up under the law. This, in fact, is the avenue of salvation. We are saved by that system, albeit with Jesus as our sacrifice instead of sheep and goats. What provoked the outrage, in my opinion, is the way that they debased this important show of um, response to God's faithfulness to a mere show, one and which had become very likely financially profitable for them. They created a system that gave them power, position, privilege, and a packed purse. I had to work hard to get all those. There are churches that have done the same. And we need to be careful of that. Okay. Then we come to the climax. The following morning, they come back past the tree and it is completely dead. This is not a deciduous tree, um, alive but leafless. Not leafless, but lifeless. Ultimately, Jesus will be executed because he predicted the destruction of the temple. That's what he was condemned for. They couldn't actually get him on anything else. His prophetic words, that were actually about him, struck fear into the hearts of these privileged priests. Sadly, they were twisted. Jesus is telling us quite clearly that we must be fruitful. If we're not fruitful, we're useless. You'll also recall that back over in Matthew 3, chapter 10, he has that parable of the axe laid at the foot of the unfruitful tree. Just giving it one more year in case. What we want to note from that particular parable, it's not a pruning saw ready for trimming. It's an axe for cutting down. That tree's taking up valuable space. If we had a shelf of goods in our pharmacy and it didn't sell, it was removed and it was replaced. And we did that many times. 
that probably would be the parable if I was telling one. So, beyond the points that Drew have already made, what do I need to make and what has Turner encouraged us to think about? Did that go? No. Thank you. Andrew Turner picks up a really interesting theme in his book and it's this that makes it different and stand out from all the other books of the similar sorts of views. Most people think of fruitfulness to encourage numerical growth, getting more people in. They do talk about deepening discipleship, etc., but they're really interested in numerical growth, making your church bigger. Now, numerical growth's great, but Turner wants to put a whole new slant on it. He sees that our purpose is sending people out, becoming a sending church. He wants to take this metaphor of fruitfulness just a little bit further than most others. What is the biological purpose of fruit? Well, it's to scatter seeds and to produce new plants. Thus, Turner's vision is not for really big churches with thousands of people in them, but lots of smaller churches. Now, using mathematics... Um, as your model to describe church growth is not ideal. He does it here, and I'm going to quote it. Um, if you imagine two churches, both start with 100 people, they both grow by 10 people a year. One keeps growing like that for 100 years, and its final congregation is 1,100 at that rate. It's quite easy mathematics. A big church. The second one does it differently. Every time it gets to 120, it sends 20 people out to plant a new church. And that church does the same. In 100 years' time, how big is that church? Well, the answer is 100, because it keeps sending its people away. It hasn't got any bigger at all. But, he says, how many people are there in the daughter and granddaughter and great-granddaughter churches? Anyone want to bring a guess? How many mathematicians have we got here? No one is willing to give a chance. No one was... What do we got? Elizabeth, you did maths well. What do you reckon? 7,000. 7, it's more. 10. 10. More. No one. There's no gamblers here, are there? Million. million. We've got a bid for a million. Not even close. 107 million people. Now, that's pretty unrealistic. But what I want to say is... Maybe this is what the original church was like, because that's what he thinks. It was forced to have small churches. They were house churches, because churches obviously didn't exist in the original um, period of the Acts. As soon as the group got too big to fit in the house, they had to go and meet in another house. Everybody had small houses. Okay. So there's two paths to being a sending church. You can do that planting or you can be part of a church that prepares people to go out and minister elsewhere. Now, his critique of the traditional church growth model is that we want to train people up and hold on to them. What will we do if Jack and Jill leave? Who will drive the senior's bus? So I sat and thought about that and our church actually has a pretty good record in the sending department. 
and I think sometimes, if during periods of our life we've outperformed for our size. We've done less so in the church planning department. We have tried, not had success there. But I remember talking to Chris Rogers, who's not here this morning, um, mentioning that they had kept a list of people that had moved from our church directly into ministry, ministry somewhere else. So here's a few that I noted, because we immediately think of upfront jobs. You know, go, people who go and lead churches. Um, when Vicky and I first arrived here in 1984 was the first time we came, Kevin Butler and John Davison at the top of that list were elders here. Within a year, both of them had gone and actually become pastors of churches. I think the next one to go was Christine Platt, with whom Vicky and I had a congregation yesterday, but that's on a different topic. And she went with SIM to Ecuador. She was an electrical engineer, and she went to run a Christian radio network in Ecuador, and now she runs Global Recordings Network. Really an ideal combination of skills. Gilbert Appleby came here with his brother, um, and they were lumberjacks. They had a timber milling operation, and uh, Gilbert worked here, uh, worshipped here, and was part of sort of running the youth group for a while, and then he left from here, went to SMBC, he married a woman called Ruth, who many of you have met, they worked in PNG, and then they went to Cambodia, and they're still there. Gary and Kim Baker were a couple in our Bible study, um, Gary ended up going to Morling College, um, they were a nurse and a teacher, and uh, he then became a Baptist minister, he was at Bathurst for many, many years, and their son was actually at Morling, probably with you. He was there when Robert was there. A non-related family, which I didn't put on the list because I couldn't think of the bloke's name. Clinton Baker's brother. He went to Mauling from here. But I can't think of his name. I didn't know him very well. A bloke called Terry Dean went from here to work for Coorong. Most of you will probably have heard of Jeremy and Mary Turvey. That's uh, Graham and Barbie's son. He and his wife and their three kids went from here to SMBC, then to work in Western China, and because of the problems in China and our missionaries in Kyrgyzstan, and our church supports them. Um, Robert French, the last one on that list, that's our son, he went to college, and then he, now he's trying to be involved in what they call bivocational ministry. So he has a daytime job, and he is also involved in church planting. So there's a list of some of the people we've sent out. My concern is that quite a bit of that is old news. I think what we need to do is try and recapture some of that strength. Andrew Turner wants to see it much more broadly than just sending people out to be full-time missionaries. He would say, whenever you have a spare musician, you don't start a roster so people have a week off. You give them to another church that needs them, preferably a new startup. Now we've also done that. Denman Anglican didn't have a uh, keyboard player of any type for some time and Margaret Jenkins, that some of you may remember, was a member of our church and so they lived in Denman and they came to our church each week and she took that role. For quite a few years she and her husband Graham um, even continued to come to our service so she would play for the service there and then hop in the car and rip in here and they'd get in here just in time for the message. Um, I've seen Margaret every now and again when I work in Denman and uh, Graham, her husband, passed away a few years ago. 
At the moment, Jenny Kershaw is basically doing that. Jenny playing at St. Albans this morning? Yep. So we're still helping out other churches with musicians. This also brings us to a slightly vexed issue that we need to address, and that is of those who leave a little bit less happily. So Adam Green, who was part of our music team, now provides the music at the Vines Church, which actually meets in this building, but at two o'clock in the afternoon. Now, I think we would certainly prefer it if we felt that we had sent someone rather than them having left over what we might regard as a disagreement. But there is actually a biblical precedent for that sort of thing. And you'll know it when I mention it to you. When Paul and Barnabas um, prepare to make their second missionary journey, you remember Paul and Barnabas go out for the first missionary journey through the southern parts of Turkey, what they called Asia. And then they come back and then the church sends them out again. Um, this event is in Acts 15, 36 to 41. Barnabas wants to take his nephew John Mark again. Paul refuses. He said, Timothy gave up on his last time, I'm not taking him again. They split over the issue. They're not reconciled. But the result is actually two teams. Barnabas and Mark go off just back to Cyprus, which was the first place that the team had gone on the first missionary journey. Paul looks around and he enlists a new supporter, a bloke called Silas. And then a few verses later, he actually adds Timothy to his team. And on they go, back to the churches in Turkey rather than in Cyprus. And then, in fact, it becomes the start of a very long missionary journey, if you want to look at the maps, where they go up and into Macedonia and down through Greece. Another example is if we look in the book of Acts, many people have commented on the way that believers were scattered by persecution. Suddenly, there are small congregations all around the Mediterranean, even before people like Paul got there. Now, I don't think that God sent the persecution. I think God knew that this persecution would occur as soon as um, the believers started to try and save people from the Jewish establishment. What we do notice in the book of Acts is that initially the new believers are quite happy cloistered in Jerusalem. They don't want to go anywhere. They're doing well. But then God was prepared. God used the persecution that he knew that would be inevitable to great effect. And out they went. Different again, a bloke called Warren Houston, some of you will know. Warren went to the Vines Church, not because he was particularly unhappy with us necessarily, but he could see the ministry they were involved in with their little shop and food, and he wanted to be part of that. Now, he still comes along to our Bible study, and he still comes to the Saturday morning prayer group, that we recommended. He wanted to do more than he was doing here, and he saw there was a chance to do it there. And he is involved in ministry. And Turner would say, we should have celebrated that instead of going, oh, what's he doing leading the church? We should have recognised his enthusiasm for a role in making the gospel known and that they had an opportunity for him to help. Now, I'd really hope that Serena Olympia might be here this morning because they sort of left. Have they been farewelled in the last three or four weeks? Sort of, yeah. Because I think what we should have done is to commission them to go and minister elsewhere rather than just saying farewell. When people leave and they've moved up the north coast, 
we shouldn't be just saying goodbye. We should be saying, go and do your work somewhere else and send them out as, an, as someone that has helped us and hopefully we have developed while they're here. Now, I have a number of times described to people that often the role of a rural church this size is to be led by a less experienced pastor, which acts as a preparation for the roles that they'll go on to take. Now, perhaps the last decade has not been our finest hour in that undertaking, but we do have some positive precedents. Um, Neil Cowling, who was the minister who started at about the same time as we started coming, went on down initially to the south coast and his role there involved um, regional supervision. He had sort of moved up. Matt Ortiger, who was the minister here for 15 years, he went on to a larger church in Newcastle, but it didn't really work out. And now he runs a very significant church-based food charity in Newcastle called Soul Cafe. And I think for him that's a very good fit. And I think that the time he spent here helped him in that regard. Uh, Chris Nelson and Dave Burgess, two other ministers we've had in the time that I've been here, have both gone into ministry in other churches. I think Chris Nelson's now probably retired. He's stopped. He's out of ministry. I think he's finished. Dave Burgess is still in the church. We need to celebrate the fact that some people have gone from here into more important positions. That's great. Turner wants to see churches unshackle their members. The first thing, I suppose, he wants us to get over is the fear of losing people. And instead, he wants to inspire in us a vision for developing the skills of our congregation first and then deliberately sending them out. The question for us is, are we up to that challenge? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the challenges that uh, Andrew Turner set us in his book. Father, we ask that we look back on our history exactly the same as uh, we look back perhaps on the history of your working with your people in the Bible and see how you've worked with us. And Father, that we might be willing to undertake a challenge to be a church that sends people out uh, to minister in your name. Father, we ask that we might be people who go out and minister in your name as well. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. And so, we're going to sing a song about that. Please, if the musicians can come up. <laughs>